Hi, my name's uh, Quay. I'm a fourth year engineering student and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. Our passage today is from Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse 1 and finishing in verse 17. Uh, we have a few helpers handing out some Bibles, so if you would like one, please raise your hand. Um, and when you receive that Bible, it'll be on pages 537 and 538. It's Jeremiah 18, verses 1 to 17. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if, and if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways on roads not built up. The land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. Thanks, Quay. Uh, my name is Tim. If we haven't met before, it's great to have you here. And uh, today I'll be doing the Bible talk from Jeremiah 18 to 20. Really helpful to have a Bible open. We'll be using it. And there's an outline on the back of the newsletter. Let me just get the screen set up. I wonder how you think about, imagine your relationship with God, your relationship with the living and true God who created you. I think for some people, they imagine God is sort of like that watchmaker who designs a machine, builds it. Once it's built and it's running, they just go on holidays. And God is sort of like that. He's made the world, it, it operates, but he's absent. Others, I guess, think of God as a father, maybe a stern father, maybe a caring father. Some of us, whether we use this image or not, really relate to God as if he's a genie. You, know, you, you rub the, the magic um, pot and the genie pops out to grant your every wish and that's what God is like. He's there, his job is to make me happy. But one of the images that the Bible uses about the relationship between us and God 
is that of the potter and the clay. Now, you've seen a potter at work, haven't you? He's one here. Uh, the idea first comes up very early in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. God is creating the world uh, and it says this, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He pictures God as a potter. He, he takes some of the dust, the mud of the, of the earth, and he fashions it. With his hands, he shapes it to, to what he wants it to be and then breathes life into it, like a potter and, and clay. Sophia, what are you doing? What are you making? Making a dog. A dog? Okay. Almost looks like it could bark. <laughs> Terrific. Well, don't worry about her for the moment. Come back to Jeremiah. Well, actually, we want to move to Romans. But just before we do, the idea of God as a potter and us as the clay, for some people, is a bit humbling and sort of confronting. And I, I have my own will, my own mind. I want to shape myself. I don't want somebody else just shaping me and I'm left with whatever they decide. I decide what I'm going to be like. Well, the other end of the Bible takes this to a new level. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, says this, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens those he wants to harden, like he did with uh, Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with the plagues. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, but God uh, has mercy on those he wants to have mercy to. There are others he draws to Jesus in order to have mercy on them. And then Paul imagines our response to that. One of you might say, why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? And presumably the answer is no one can, if he's the potter and we're the clay. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Do, do you know your place? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make uh, me like this? That's just inappropriate, isn't it? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? That is, this image of potter and clay emphasises the freedom of God to make exactly what he wants. And what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 is something which, for some of us, is pretty uncomfortable. It's the idea of God's election, God's choosing. God chooses to harden some in their sin, and God chooses to have mercy on some. I think I was about 15 when I first came across this idea. I'd been a Christian for about three years, and uh, in our youth group, um, a, a guy who was a school teacher, who had been a sort of elder in our church, said he was going to run the youth group Bible studies for the next few weeks. So he came along, and he gave us some studies on the sovereignty of God in choosing he who, uh, the ones he would save. And I hated it. The idea appalled me. But I was battered into submission. Because that is what the Bible says. Now, the Bible doesn't say we choose God and therefore God chooses us. It says God chooses us. That's why we choose God. It's his initiative. It's not that God looks forward and sees what I will do and says, oh, Tim's got a good heart. He, he, he might put his faith in Jesus, so I'll choose him. Now, it's regardless of anything about me. It's just God's free choice. He's the potter. I'm the clay. I remember when I sort of got to the end of that and I'd been battered into submission, started to see some beauty in it. Um, I was talking to another older Christian man 
and, and explained what I'd come to, to understand. And he said to me, Tim, I could never worship a God like that. And God's response is, will the clay tell the potter what he's to make? Now, it's not the total picture. It's not the full picture. It's, a, it's, it's one aspect because God breathed life into the first humans. He made us thinking, deciding beings. We're not simply clay, lifeless uh, bits of rock. Yet it is a true picture of the relationship between God and us. If you're a Christian and you've turned from living for yourself to trusting Jesus, it's because God chose you and brought you to Jesus. And I think that gives you a wonderful confidence. Because if it's all about my choice, now yesterday I didn't choose Jesus, today I do, do choose Jesus, then what's going to happen tomorrow? It's just my choice. I'm going to change my mind, maybe. I can't be confident. I'll continue to trust in Jesus. If God chose me, I can be. If you're not a Christian yet, then this could be unsettling. Because it sounds fatalistic, like your, uh, your destiny is just locked in and nothing can ever change. And that was part of what Israel thought about herself. Because Israel knew about her election. This is what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other people. You are the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. That's why he chose you. Why Israel? Why, why not the Moabites? Well, God says it's nothing to do with you. I didn't see something in you that attracted me. It was regardless of that. The, the only reason is I just decided to choose you. It was my free choice and I chose to love you. To save you and make you my own. I, I'm the potter and you're the clay. But unfortunately for Israel, that seemed to easily bring a sense of entitlement, a sense of pride. God chose us. And if God chose us, that's sort of permanent. doesn't matter what happens, what we do, God's choice will continue. And that image of God as the potter, Israel as the clay that God has chosen to make his own people, was something that became part of Israel's self-identity. We're God's special possession. He's made us his own. Well, let's just zoom out for a minute. Where are we in the book of Deuteronomy? Where are we in history? If you've been with us, this is a regular picture. We're looking at these periods in the life of Judah, part of the kingdom of Israel, around 640 to 587 BC, uh, when Jeremiah is prophesying. And in the structure of the book, we're now up to chapters 18 to 20, and over the last 11 chapters or so, God has been deliberately, purposely demolishing some of the confidences that Judah has that the judgment of God won't come on them. In, in chapters 7 to 10, it won't come on them because they've got the temple of God. God will never let that be destroyed. It won't come on them because of the covenant of God in chapters 11 to 17. And this, uh, this passage, it won't come on us because we're the elect of God. God has chosen us. The word of God dismantles their confidence in their election. They've got this shared confidence. It's in verse 6 of Jeremiah 18. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you, Judah, in my hand. So are you, Israel, in the hand of God. 
God's the potter, Israel's the clay. God's announced his will about Israel. What will he do with them? What will he make of them? Well, they will be his people. That's what must happen. That's inevitable because God's the potter. Nothing will ever change. They feel like they're confident that that is set in concrete. So for Israel, God being the potter gives them a sense of security, what turns out to be false security. God will never backflip. It's going to remain exactly this way. He's made the shape. It will never change. But God wants them to know that they've drawn the wrong conclusion from the potter and the clay. So he sends Jeremiah to the potter's house. And this is what he sees. Okay, you've seen it. Thanks, Sophia. Really thankful for you to to sit out the front and do that while everybody (laughs) wonders what you're doing. And you see that described in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah sees the potter, does exactly that. He's making something. He decides that's not what he wants to make. He just scrunches it up and starts to make something different. And the implications are spelled out in verses 7 through to 10. God says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and will not inflict on it the disaster I planned. I'll change the shape of what I'm making. On the other hand, if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and it does evil in my sight and doesn't obey me, then I'll reconsider the good that I intended to do for it. Pretty simple lesson, isn't it? The potter is free to make what he wants to make with his clay. And if he decides that the clay isn't what, what, forming the shape he wants, he wants to make a different shape, he will do that. He might have said, I'm going to build you up, but if you do evil, he'll change his mind. He might have said, I'm going to destroy you, but if you repent, he will relent and change his mind. It changes Israel's whole posture and their position. And in verse 11, he applies it to Israel. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, reform your ways and your actions. He calls on them not to be confident, to know that disaster is coming, but if they turn, disaster will be avoided. He enacts verse 7 and verse 8. It's a call to reform to each one of them that hear this message, each individual. God is the potter. He said he will bring disaster. You deserve it. But if you turn, he will make something different. You don't deserve God to to relent. It's not that God is forced by your action to relent. No, he's the potter. In his freedom, he will relent. Well, how does Judah respond to this word from God? Will they heed the warning? Will they take up this generous offer from God? Will they escape the catastrophe that's looming large? Verse 12, they'll reply, it's no use. We'll continue with our plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Jeremiah, don't waste your breath. God, don't waste your words. We've set our course. 
We're going to plough straight on. We are committed to sin and evil. To which God responds with a sort of disbelief. What are you doing? Verse 13, inquire among the nations. Who's ever heard of something like this? The most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? The answer is no. Lebanon is always white. Summer, winter, it's always white up there. Does its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? No, the Sea of Galilee is constantly filled with the water coming down from Mount Hermon and uh, the, the, the mountains around it. Uh, no, it's always, it'd be unnatural for that to happen. And so it's totally unnatural, unbelievable what Judah is doing. Verse 15, yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which make them stumble in their ways, in the ancient paths. They make them walk in byways on roads not built up. What Israel is doing is irrational. It's impossible to fathom. He calls them virgin Israel. They're, they're his fiancée. They're engaged to God. And while they're engaged planning the wedding, what are they doing? They're going out to nightclubs and looking for one-night stands. And God says, have you forgotten me and turned to worthless idols, to other things that they can't deliver? What, sort of, uh, what will come of that sort of behaviour? Well, <laughs> nothing at all, really except probably get slapped around a bit and get some STIs and a hangover the next day. That, that's all it'll give you. In the end of verse 15, he talks about you've gone into the byways, not roads built up. I've got a perfectly level, brilliant highway for you, and, what if, and you've turned off into that rough track that'll just take your suspension out. What on earth are you doing, Israel? Because sin is like that, isn't it? It is. It's not just evil. It's irrational. It's dumb at heart. See, at heart, the, the desire to be God of myself, to be the potter of my life, is illogical and foolish because it's obvious that I'm not and you're not. I, I didn't make my life. I don't supply the air I breathe, the food that I eat that, that keeps me alive. Somebody else does. To sort of ignore God, pretend he's, he's irrelevant, to pretend that I'm God is as silly as ignoring the fact that your parents own the home that you grew up in. Ignore the reality that you didn't provide the food that you've been eating. It's just silly. Or to get a bit more specific, something like pornography. Research keeps showing time and time again that pornography is bad for us and bad for those around us. Every bit of research that comes out just shows more and more how poisonous it is. But what do we do? We still consume it. Knowingly, willingly consume poison. That's not rational, is it? It's silly, but that's what sin is like. And it's shown further by the way they respond to Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes saying, warning, warning, but if you turn, God will relent. And what do they do? Verse 18, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law, the prophets, that's good, but let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. They shoot the messenger. That's pretty dumb too, isn't it? Now, Matt took us through some of that last week. We're not going to explore uh, the way it affects Jeremiah, but come back to the sin 
of Judah. Judah is stubborn. She's committed to her sinful ways. God shows a similar stubbornness through Jeremiah. His word will ring out, even if they're committed to not listening to that word. No matter what the response, God will still speak. And in chapter 19 and and first part of 20, Jeremiah reinforces the message. Uh, Verse 1, God says to him, go and buy a clay jar from a potter. This time it's not just the clay. This is a clay jar. It's it's been uh, formed and fashioned. It's been dried. It's now brittle. It's a jar. You can't rework this one. And you should go down to the gate, the pot's herd gate, where lots of the broken pottery is, part of the rubbish dump, to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And this is what he's to say in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They burned incense uh, in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they filled this place with the blood of the innocent. What does he mean by that? Well, the next verse. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. In their idolatry, they've even sacrificed their own children executed them, killed them, and burnt their bodies alive. And God says, I've never even thought of that. I never told you to do that. It's the furthest thing from my mind of what I want my people to be. It's too awful to imagine. But it happened then, and it happened again later. In verse 6, Jeremiah is told that the name of the Valley of Hinnon is to be changed to the Valley of Slaughter because what you'll associate with that valley is going to change. In verses 7 to 9, he talks about this coming judgment. In this place, I'll ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I'll make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I'll give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I'll devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of its wounds. I'll make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. It's too awful to imagine, isn't it? A siege so bad, people starving in such desperation, they start to eat each other, eat the bodies of those who've died around them from starvation. And Jeremiah is told to get that jar and smash it on the ground Because Israel cannot be reformed by God. They're just going to be destroyed. Now what Jeremiah describes happened in 587 BC when the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem and sacked it. And they did eat some of their own. And he says the Valley of Hinnon will be called the Valley of Slaughter. There'll be mass uh, graves there overflowing. You won't be able to fit all the bodies in there. The whole land in that area outside Jerusalem will be defiled by the dead carcasses in it. In Jesus' day, it was called Gehenna. Valley of Hinnon, Ger Hinnon, Gehenna. Um, 
It was the rubbish dump at that stage outside Jerusalem where you threw all your rubbish and the fires just burned all the time, burning up the rubbish and the carcasses that were thrown out there of animals and people. The smoke and the smell was terrible. And it's the image Jesus uses for hell, Gehenna, where the fire will never be quenched and the pain never anaesthetized. And what's the response? What's the official response to Jeremiah proclaiming the word of the Lord? Well, chapter 20, verse 1, when the priest Pashur, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate. How did they respond? Did they repent? Did they even convene a committee and say, I wonder if Jeremiah is saying something that could be true? No, they just shut him down. They arrested and tortured him. Because what he's saying made them feel uncomfortable. And we don't like people making us feel uncomfortable. And so like stupid children, they take stupid revenge. But what does all this mean for us, living two and a half thousand years later? The first and fundamental thing to say, I think, is that God says to us that one very important aspect of our relationship with God is that he is the potter and we are the clay. It's foundational to understanding who I am, who you are, what shapes us and our relationship with God. There's much more to being human than just being the, 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 the clay in the potter's hand. We're shaped in God's image. We're volitional, responsible beings, but we are still clay in the potter's hands. There's much more to our relationship with God. We're loved and nurtured and redeemed and adopted, but we're still pot, uh, uh, clay in the hand of the potter. And that means necessarily a posture of humility towards God. That's what the book of Job is about. You don't know the, the whole story of Job. Job had it all, and then he lost it all. It, it seems like God took everything away from Job for no reason, at least no reason that Job can discern. And in the end, God, Job says to God, God, come and explain yourself. I want to charge you with injustice, with immorality. How does God respond? Does he say, oh, Job, yeah, let me explain my reasons and I hope you'll feel happy. Did he hold himself accountable to Job? No. God summoned Job and says, can you be the potter? Can you do it? Have you got the power? Have you got the wisdom to run this world? No, you're not up for it, are you, Job? You're not the potter. I'm the potter. And Job repents of his arrogance. He says, I despise myself. I'm just a piece of mud. God is the potter. He's free to do as he pleases in his world, in his creation. He's free to make of his clay anything he wants. He's not accountable to me and my demands. He's not accountable to me and my principles, what he ought to adhere to. Now, in one sense, that's scary, isn't it? Because I don't know what God will do. If he's the potter, I'm, I'm totally in his hands. I, I don't know which way will it go. Will he just change? Will he, is he like a, a, a person with a different whim every day? Now, God has his principles. that They're spelt out in this chapter, like in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 18. He, he's got his principles. He's let us know about his principles. 
But he speaks his word to us as his creatures. He reveals his principles. He doesn't ask us what they should be. And as he speaks his word, he speaks a very clear word of judgment to many, to those who continue in sin. In his day, it was on Judah. All who want to go their own way. All of us who refuse to acknowledge our potter as being our potter. Maybe we do it with our own religion, the practices that we have to honour the gods we have. Maybe we do it simply by living for ourselves, as if I'm the clay shaping my own life. But whichever, if it's anything apart from, beside, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's word exposes it as wrong, as evil. And he warns us that judgment is coming. How do you respond to God's word of judgment? Because the, the way we often respond is to resent it, to harden our heart against it, to entrench the direction we're going in instead of listen to, to the word of warning. Can I say as gently as I can, that is a crazy way to respond, isn't it? If somebody ran into this lecture theatre saying, the building's on fire, get out, get out, would you immediately want to shut them down? Would you want to tie them up and put a gag in their mouth and say, shut up, you're making me feel uncomfortable? I presume we'd say, maybe they're telling the truth. I should listen and see whether there's anything to this and then maybe act. Well, God warns us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He's concerned for us. Please consider his warning seriously. But God also warns, has a word for the complacent. Again, it's a word of warning. One of the dangers Judah had that Judah brought on herself was this complacency because they believed they were God's chosen people. If they're God's chosen people, no judgment could ever come. God's word is, I'm the potter. If you deserve judgment, I'm free to change my plans and to bring judgment on you. If you spurn me and turn away, if you become like other nations. See, God's election is not like that uh, uh, jar that has already been formed and set. He can change his mind about us and our destiny. Now that may raise problems for you, but let me point out one of the things it does. As we look through the Bible and get to places like Romans 9, it's clear that the way election works through the Bible changes a little bit with the coming of Christ. Christ died to pay the penalty for our rebellion. He was raised as Lord of all and then poured out his spirit. And what does the spirit do? Well, the spirit works in the elect, the God, those, those whom God has chosen, to bring them to new birth, to give them a new nature, to regenerate them. So his election, which in the Old Testament is sort of a nation, it's, a, it's people, it's names, now is an election that brings about a new nature in us. And so an unavoidable question is to ask, how do I know I'm one of those elect? How can I be sure? Well, the answer is because the Spirit gives you a new nature. That's how you know you're one of the elect. And so this is what John says in 1 John, no one born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They can't go and sinning because they've been born of God. Now notice he doesn't say someone born of God never sins. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be true of any of us. 
What he says is they don't continue in sin. Because if we're born of God, if we're elect, chosen and therefore regenerated, sin is sort of an alien presence. It's there. But when I sin, it's no longer, oh, yeah, of course, that's, what I, that's just who I am. No, it's not who I am anymore. That's not what I want to be. It's an alien thing in me. And some of us may be like Judah. We believe that we're God's elect. And we presume that we're God's elect because maybe our family have been Christians or maybe we made a decision when we were 15 and, well, doesn't that settle the matter? And that can lead to complacency where I think I can indulge in blatant and ongoing sin and everything will be okay. No, you can't. That shows if that is what you're doing, you're not elect. Peter says the opposite way. He puts the opposite spin on it. Well, the other side of the coin. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election by living a life that is suitable. So it's sort of like you're a student, aren't you? How do you confirm that you're a student? Well, you don't go back and look at your enrolment. You do some study, don't you? If you never do any study, it doesn't matter what your enrolment says, you're not a student. And so uh, Peter says, confirm your calling and election. And lastly, there's a word to the despairing. Some might hear this talk of potter and clay and think God hardens who he wants, God has mercy. That might lead to despair. Maybe I'm not one of the elect. Maybe there's no hope for me. Maybe my hope is sealed. I'm doomed already. I'll come back to chapter 18, verse 7. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom or person is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, if that nation or person I warned repents of its evil, I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I planned. Go turn and God will welcome you and accept you. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Come to God as your potter. Amen.